this year I celebrate 10 years of sobriety. Um, and Congrats. I was shocked to find that not a single study existed on the impact of diet and addiction recovery outcomes, not one. Mm-mm. And I found that to be really remarkable considering the remarkable experience I had had with food in addiction recovery. And everywhere you go, they talk about, oh, you gotta eat omega-3 fatty in recovery. You gotta eat fish for that. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. And I'm like, well, that's great. Where's the data? What's up? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Plant Remedy Podcast. It's your host, Chef Bay. And I'm so excited to be here with you today. If it's your first time listening to the show, thank you so much for tuning in. I am a professional plant-based chef, a holistic nutritionist, a podcast host, a cookbook author of the book, Cook, Heal, Go Vegan, and um, currently living in San Diego with my husband and my dogs. And I feel just so lucky to be living the life that I live. But all that aside, I'm so excited to have you here. I am coming at you from a new and improved office. I retook my office over the weekend and it just feels so, so good in here. Honestly, I had the same kind of like office space since we moved into our place five years ago and it was like really dungeony and really dark. And the only thing was dungeony, that's such a funny word to use, because it was dark gray. The color was dark gray. And I don't know, I didn't realize how dark it made the space until I literally painted a bright orange wall and the rest is like almost yellow. Um, It's like a beige yellow, but it's so bright in here now. The energy is so good. Like it just makes me feel so amazing being in this space. Um, So I'm just like so happy about it. And I'm so happy to be bring this podcast in this new energy, this new energetic zone. Ooh, you guys, this week's podcast episode is probably one of the most real intense, real and intense podcast episodes we've ever done. Um, I like, don't even know what to say right now because this, this episode makes me feel all the feelings. It's the first episode that I've cried during. Um, yeah, I just, man, it's crazy. So we talked to Adam Sud from the plant-based addict and this episode is about addiction. This episode is about mental health. This episode is about food and how addiction and food and drug, drug abuse and prescription pills are just all connected. And this is something that's so close to me because I have lost, a lot of people to addiction personally. Um, and if you guys have been listening to the podcast for a long time, there was this, uh, phase, let's see, not, let's see, not last year, but the year before that in 2020, where I like could not show up for the mic because I had lost one of my best friends to addiction. I was the last person to talk to her and it was just something that, just rocked me. And it wasn't the first person that I had lost to addiction, but she was the person I lived with before I moved in with my husband. She was like my only friend in San Diego for a long time. And her battle with addiction eventually ended up costing her her life. And that was just something that I still am processing. Like, I think 
I've just been so busy the last couple of years. You know, she died the day after my manuscript was due or the day my manuscript was due for my book. Um, so, you know, it's just busy. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of, and I don't want to say like busyness, but it's hard to process. Like grief is something that affects you differently every time it happens, right? Every time you lose someone. And this conversation really brought me back to her, brought me back to my, my like place in the relationship with her. And, um, you know, if you're listening to this episode and you have lost someone to addiction, you're going through an addiction right now. Um, take a deep breath, but this episode is really great. It's amazing. This is the type of episode to send to someone if they don't really understand, um, or to just like help you get a whole new perspective on addiction and the way that our country views rehab and how we can support the people in our lives that are going through something because let's be real real mental health is at its all-time low (laughs) like it's at its all-time low and everything that's going on politically and how rights are being taken away and the pandemic and the grief that we've all felt over the last couple years um mental health is something that I know we see everywhere all over you know social media and we think about it but it is really, really something that we need to focus on. And addiction goes right there with mental health, right? Prescription drug abuse goes right there with mental health, like food addiction right there with mental health. It's all connected. And Adam does a beautiful job at telling his story, but also showing up in the way that he is giving us tools and resources and new thought patterns on how to um, show up for people in our lives that are dealing with something and also showing up for ourselves. So man, you guys, I'm already been feeling all the feels this week and I've been very stressed. There's a lot going on and re-listening to this conversation just really brings everything back into perspective. And, um, I think you're really going to love it. So With that said, before we get into this episode, I just want to remind you guys that we do have a free download. We're getting so close to the launch of my new course coming out, and it's literally going to be amazing. To get on the wait list for the course and to get all the access to the pre-sale bundles, I'm just like teasing you guys with the smallest little hints, but um, you can go ahead and download six hacks to heal your period using food on my website at www.chefbay.kitchen. It'll pop up right there. And all you do is enter in your email. What that's going to do is immediately email you that free guide and we'll put you on the wait list um, to get to know more about this course and get early bird pricing, which is going to be an amazing deal. We have over 3,000 people on the wait list right now. This is going to be one of the biggest launches we've ever done. And I've been working on this course like day and night and you guys are going to love it. I just can't wait. So yeah, go to www.chefbay.kitchen to download the free guide and to get put on the wait list. All right. Are you guys ready? Let's do it. Let's get into this episode with Adam Sud, the plant-based addict. Let's go. All right, guys, I'm sitting down with Adam Sud, also known as the plant-based addict. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to have uh, this conversation today. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. Let's do Thank it. You. I know I, I just had Rip on the show and he had nothing but amazing things to say about you. And I'm just like so intrigued by your story. So 
I just, I can't wait to get into it. If you guys are listening and you want to like look up his Instagram, it's at the plant-based addicts on IG. So you can kind of look Mm -hmm. at his IG while you're listening. Um, but yeah, I first like, just want to know what's your favorite plant-based meal right now? Like, what are you vibing with? Okay. So I've really gotten into, uh, just doing giant bowls of what I call protein, nice cream. All right. So yeah, every morning, every single morning I'll get up and I make my fiance and I coffee and this is before she gets up and I go and I make a giant bowl of blueberry, banana, vanilla protein, nice cream. And I, I can't just seem to get enough of it. I love it. So it's two cups, frozen blueberries, one frozen banana, a cup of soy milk, a scoop of vanilla protein powder, and you blend it up. That's it. Sometimes I'll top it with like pumpkin seeds or chia Mm. seeds or whatever. And it's super thick. It comes out. I mean, like if you were to scoop it with a spoon and you turn the spoon over, it stays on the spoon. Yeah. All day. Love it. (laughs) It's so funny. It reminds me of when Cyrus was on the show. He just like couldn't stop talking about how much he loves mangoes and how he would just eat like bowls and bowls and bowls of mangoes. So I feel like it's kind of similar. It's kind of similar. Yeah. Yeah. He's now on a, it's funny enough, he's on a chickpea kick right now where he literally will eat somewhere along the lines of like four cans of chickpeas a day. Oh my God. <laughs> I love that. I actually, cause he was telling me about how he like travels with cans of chickpeas and yeah. I was eating, like I made like a chickpea tuna salad and I ate like a crazy amount of it the other day. I was just like ravenously hungry. And I was thinking to myself, yeah. like, can you eat too many chickpeas? Like, is this an issue? And then I immediately thought of Cyrus <laughs> and I was like, I feel like Cyrus would definitely approve of this. He would definitely approve. He literally just tears the can open and then he just uses the spoon and that's it. Like, Oh my God. That's, that's yeah. wild. That's wild. Yeah. I love making my own. Cause you get like so much from such a small amount oh, yeah. of dried chickpeas. Yeah. So wait, what kind of protein powder do you use? So, it just depends on what I have. Usually my go-to is uh, my friend Nimai Delgado has a company called Veg Nutrition. Okay. And uh, he's got three flavors, um, a cold brew coffee flavor, a chocolate peanut butter, and then his vanilla ice cream flavor. Yum. Uh, the thing is that I have you have to order his online. Mm. And so sometimes I run out and then I'll just get like the Vegas Sport Elite vanilla and just go with that until I get more from Nimai. I love that. Yeah. I really have been vibing with, um, four Sigmatic has a really good one. This is not sponsored they by do. the way, guys. I yeah. really like theirs for some reason. It just has yeah. like a good flavor to it. And actually sprouts. I don't know if you have a sprouts grocery store, but they're, do, yeah. they're a vanilla protein powder. When I like am in a bind, I always get that one because it's the flavor. I'm always curious to try them all. I, unfortunately, yeah. because I say it a lot, I talk about it a lot. I get ads all the time on my phone. <laughs> Which is, which is really not good because I'm easily influenced into purchasing them. <laughs> I'll end up with all these different brands and I'm like, oh goodness, I need to, I need to eat these before I order more. Oh my gosh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like my supplement and protein powder, like that whole cabinet, I've got like all the different green powders and stuff. My husband's like, can we do yeah. something about this? Like this is out of control. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. We do a giveaway or something. Like we are not going to go through all of this by the time it expires. Yeah. I love I that. So goes. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. I mean, or a lot yeah. about your story, just so that our listeners can get a nice background on like where you come from and what you're all about. Yeah. So I'm a seventh, sixth or seventh generation Texan. 
Um, okay. In fact, I'm like sixth or seventh generation Houstonian. Wow. Um, so my dad's family goes way, way back in, in Houston, Texas. So I was raised on burgers and barbecue. Mm. And then on top of that, I'm also Jewish. So I was also raised on bagels and blintzes. So it's like burgers, barbecue, bagels, blintzes. <laughs> all bees. I like to- I like all it. All bees. I kind of just kind of <laughs> describe it as like, if you were to take the standard American diet and put it in a pair of cowboy boots and then give it some chutzpah, that would be the diet. Um, and, um, you know, the thing is like, I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s, I was born in 1982. So I was part of a a generation that spent every free minute playing outside, Mm. playing sports, playing in the neighborhood. I grew up in a neighborhood where all of my friends were either on my street or one or two streets away. And so we would ride our bikes, skateboard, rollerblade. We rode our bikes to and from school. Our dads were really engaged in uh, being involved in, in sports with us. So they were like the, the coaches of our little league baseball teams and basketball teams and yeah. football teams. And um, I had a mom who was very involved in inspiring my artistic side and my imagination. I grew up a theater kid. Um, it was funny because I kind of like bridged the gap between jock and like theater kid. And I don't want to like create a narrative that like theater kids aren't cool, but like the stereotype, <laughs> you know, yeah, especially um, in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, especially in the 90s, exactly. Yeah. And I had this phenomenal, I have, a, I have an identical twin brother and a younger sister, and we had this magical childhood before, you know, social media, before everybody knew where you were, where basically between the time you got home from school and dinner, you would ride your bike five miles, you'd build a fort, you'd hop 30 fences, and then somehow you got home before you got in trouble. You know, that whole yeah. awesome childhood. And totally. there was this there was this point in time, though, around the age of 10, when this was the summer in Texas, this would have been 1992. Um, I came running into my house and I basically just wore a bathing suit all the time in the summer. And my parents stopped me and they asked me why I already had love handles. Oof. And, you know, it was so such an interesting question because I'd never heard the term before, but I was immediately aware that it wasn't a good thing. That's the, that was the energy that was being given off by my parents. And so I had to ask them what they meant and what it was. And and it's so confusing because at 10 years old, I'm not buying the food. Yeah. I'm not feeding myself. And so I just didn't understand. They're saying, oh, it's because you're, you know, you get it when you eat too much fat or you do too much of this. And before that interaction, I was completely accepting of myself, both, both physically and emotionally. Mm. And within a matter of a second, it was like, boom. There were conditions upon which I would not be acceptable anymore. And what scared me about that was that it came from the people who were, in my opinion, I felt safest around up until that moment, emotionally and physically, uh, you know, had a self-image that was protected around them. Right. And now all of a sudden, I didn't know where this condition came from. And I didn't know if there was one condition, what were the others and why did I not know what they were? And about the same time I was taken to a doctor 
and I was I was diagnosed with ADHD, and I was taken to this doctor because I was apparently things weren't going well in school. I don't remember that they weren't. Mm-hmm. I was a popular. I'm a, I, I am a an extrovert plus. So <laughs> I, I had a lot of friends Same. and I, and I enjoyed <laughs> yeah. school, but apparently I was, you know, misbehaving or acting up. And so was taken talking, to a doctor talking too much or something. I was taken yeah. to a doctor for reasons I didn't understand. Mm. I was given tests that I didn't understand. And I was given a diagnosis I didn't understand. And this was really what it seemed like was another person of authority whose opinion about me was going to be conveyed to my parents. My parents were going to put a lot of faith in that opinion. Mm. And essentially, this isn't the doctor's words exactly, but essentially the doctor was saying, we've discovered something else about your son that isn't right. Something else about him that doesn't work properly and that actually the rest of the world would rather him not have. And so what we're going to do is we're going to prescribe him a medication. And this medication is going to hide this unacceptable part of him so that he can now be around other people and be okay. And that medication was Ritalin at the time. And I remember just from that point on, I, 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 I developed this hyper self, this hyper awareness where I was always hyper aware of, of cues and, and indications coming from other people. Were they noticing something about me that I hadn't noticed yet that was not acceptable? Was I, did I look okay? Did I act okay? Did I sound okay? Was I doing everything I needed to do in order to belong to a group of people and feel valuable? And if I wasn't, what do I need to do to fix it? What's the substance that's going to solve this problem? And we moved to Austin right before I started high school, which was very, very difficult for me. Yeah, for sure. I had a, a very close knit group of friends. Um, I was passionate about theater. Um, I had been accepted into a private acting high school called the High School for the Performing and Visual Arts in Houston that you have to audition to get into. And all that was taken away from me. And then I was thrown into a very big Texas football high school Hmm. that was very cliquish. And I didn't know anybody. And I was bullied a lot my freshman year. I was bullied so much so that my parents had to get involved. They... I mean, to the point I was getting rocks thrown at me. It was, it was not good. I mean, I was an awkward freshman, sure. And I know freshmen are awkward. And, I, but I just felt one, I felt betrayed that what I had been working for my whole life, to, my, you know, my whole middle school uh, and, and acting career to do, to go to the school was just taken away. And then I was thrown into a school that I didn't want to go to and felt even more unsafe than I ever had before, physically yeah. and emotionally. And then my prescription for Ritalin was switched to Adderall. And oh my goodness, everything seemed to change. Uh, as soon as students found out about this, uh, the, the kids that I would avoid in the hallways had their arms around me in the hallways. You know, all of a sudden I got invited to parties. And it felt really good. Mm. Because for the first time, I seemed to have something about me that was valuable to other people that they couldn't get anywhere else. And I remember being invited to parties specifically for the purpose of me bringing my Adderall. And I absolutely agreed to do this because like I said, I wanted to feel like I had figured out what I needed to do to feel like I was valuable to a group of people 
within a community of shared respect. And I can remember using Adderall for the first time as a recreational drug. Now I was slightly overweight as a freshman going into my sophomore year. Um, I had very low self-confidence because I'd been bullied for a year and I didn't, uh, and this is my first time knowing this group of people. Um, I had very poor study habits because I was depressed as a freshman. Um, the school system was different from the one I was in. And so this created a lot of tension between my father and I, because he was so desperate to help me figure out how to have study habits that looked like the way he liked to work. And I just couldn't do it. And so we would get into arguments a lot. And the first time that I used Adderall as a recreational drug, it was like the universe said, I would say it felt like the universe gave me a hug and said, hey, man, we got you. Mm. Because it seemed to magically solve every single one of those struggles that I had been struggling with and dealing with for such a long time overnight. Adderall is an amphetamine. That's what the stuff is. So it's medically pure amphetamine. That's why it works so well. And I'm not saying Adderall is good or bad. I'm just saying that that's what it is. Um, so all of a sudden, my metabolism is going through the roof. I have boundless energy and unbelievable confidence for the first time in my life. I could party at 100% for the entire night and I could the life of the party and I, I could personally make the party better because I could supply to you that thing that just takes a good party to an unbelievable party. Um, it gave me a sense of, of power and confidence that I could go up and talk to anybody and I could, whatever they were talking about was immediately interesting. So this was great. I could make friends. Um, also my study habits seemed to really fall into place because if I just took more Adderall, I could look like the student my dad wanted me to look like. And then all of a sudden my dad and I stopped fighting and I think, oh, I figured this out. With unbelievable ease and unbelievable repeatability, I could fix the most insurmountable struggles of my life. That's really the key here. Wasn't just that it was a solution. It was a solution of unbelievable ease and unbelievable repeatability. It asked very little of me in order to do this thing, to take these pills. And the solution that it delivered was incredibly attractive. And so I got hooked. Mm. I got so hooked to this opportunity of finally figuring it out. I'd finally figured this shit out. Like I could make friends, I could lose weight. I could have the relationship with my dad that I wanted. And it worked, it worked so well. I had friends and girlfriends. I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. Everything was working until it wasn't, which is the common typical story. Mm -hmm. uh, when more became not enough and not enough became a problem that I was dealing with every single day. And I ended up dropping out of school and I ended up moving back to Austin, Texas. I was going to school in Georgia, moving back to Austin and ending up buying and selling drugs on the street doctor shopping, which is where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medication without them knowing about each other. It's a felony. I was forging prescriptions. I was stealing from people. I fully engaged in what anyone would say is a life of a criminal drug addict. And at the same time, I was consistently treating my family like absolute garbage because 
all of a sudden, this unbelievable solution had become a very overwhelming problem. And it was such a slight, subtle, and almost imperceptible shift from solution to struggle that I didn't get it. I didn't know how what was once the most wonderful solution I'd ever found overnight seemingly became this thing that I couldn't get away from. Mm. It worked once and I don't know why it couldn't work anymore. I don't know why all of a sudden it had turned into this thing where in order to fill the need, I had to do really horrible things to wonderful people, mm. which is really what had happened. And there would be times when I would just, okay, so let me give you an example. The average prescription for Adderall is about 10 milligrams for every 24 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, the last five years of my substance abuse, I was doing anywhere from 450 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams a day. Holy shit. And I would do that for six days straight. And I would do it without sleeping. I would end up in a drug-induced psychosis where in order to get myself to come down, I'd pop opiates that would force mm -hmm. me to fall asleep for about two days. Then I'd wake up, have no drugs, spend the next two weeks binging on about 5,000 calories of fast food a day until I got more drugs and I started the whole cycle over again. Mm. By 2010, I weighed about 350 pounds. Damn. And I was nearly broke. I had been completely separated from uh, my friends, from work. My life had completely fallen apart. And my dad who my dad has been involved with Whole Foods Market since the founding of the company. Um, and he came to me with this opportunity to go and meet a guy named Rip Esselstyn. Now, oh I didn't know, I didn't know who Rip Esselstyn was. Forks Over Knives hadn't even come out yet. Yeah. But Whole Foods Market had partnered with Rip because he had written this book called The Engine 2 Diet. Yeah. Which is going to help people reverse chronic disease with a plant-based diet. And he was, my dad was really passionate about this. I could tell. And he's like, you know, I want you to meet this guy. Whole Foods is going to be doing this thing with him where we're going to be sending our employees for seven days to this retreat with him to learn how to eat, eat this, this plant-based diet and lose weight and take charge of their health. And I was like, whatever. All right, let's, let's go meet this guy. I don't care. Yeah, totally. Okay. I, I'll tell you right now, I didn't know who he was. I didn't want to know who he was. I didn't, I didn't know what a plant-based diet was, and I sure as shit didn't want to know what it was. Mm -hmm. and I met with him. And I put on the standard act of, oh, this sounds wonderful. I'm so excited about this. I can't wait to go. Oh, yeah, I need it. And if I go, I'll do everything that you say because I really do care about my health. It was a bullshit act to get my dad to believe that I was really going to engage in what he wanted. Because if I can get him to believe that, I can get him to keep giving me money. Mm. That was the whole play. And I went to Rip's immersion in 2010. It was the second one that he ever did. And I was high the whole time. I was diaphoretic where my, I was flushed red all the time. I would sweat through about three shirts a day. I smelled incredibly toxic because at that point in time, I basically didn't ever shower or brush my teeth. And I lived like a hoarder. And apparently there were conversations throughout that seven day retreat where they were deciding whether to, to kick me out because I was so disruptive to the participants and the team. But one thing I know that I did and went to every single lecture, I listened to everything that was being said. I learned about the, the fundamentals of plant-based nutrition and how they can be used to take charge of your health and your life. Mm. 
Hmm. And it all made sense. It spoke to a core value of mine that I was given by my grandmother, uh, which is a deep loving connection to nature, to the natural world and to the animals that we share this world with. So not only did it make sense logically, it spoke to my heart. And I wanna tell you that with all of those things, after those seven days, I went home and I put that stuff to work and my life got better, but that's just not true. And it's because of one very simple reason. At that time in my life, living hurt in every single sense of the word, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I wasn't ready to give up what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be on the gamble that this guy's diet would actually work out in the, over the course of a year or two years. Mm. That's the big thing. When we talk about addiction, people want to talk about dependency and they want to define addiction by dependency. And dependency is real, sure. Biochemical dependency is a physical adaptation to a substance where the removal of the substance results in a usually unwanted and painful withdrawal experience. And they'll say, there you go. That's addiction. That's not addiction. Dependency can happen whether addiction exists or not. What addiction is, is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life has become too painful a place to be. And you develop a very strong emotional dependency, an emotional adaptation to a substance that relieves that pain with unbelievable ease. Mm. That's what addiction is. And my life got much more painful over the course of the next year and a half. To the point where I was practicing self-harm on a regular basis, I routinely stand in the mirror and beat myself as hard as I could I was swollen, bleeding, red all over in the attempts that I could finally just hate myself and hate my life enough. Mm. I was convinced that if I could just hate myself and hate my life enough, that that would be what would get me to want to change. But the problem is it just made me feel more disconnected from the belief that I could ever reconnect to what it is to be meaningful, a lot meaningfully alive anymore experience life in a meaningful way with loving and meaningful bonds. And I, I didn't have a plan on August 21st of 2012. I didn't write a note, I didn't call anybody. But for the last six months leading up to August 21st of 2012, I had been battling suicidal thoughts. And I had been battling suicidal thoughts because every single day of those last six months was the most painful day of my life. And I was living in full confidence that the next day was going to be even more painful. And if that's the trajectory of your life, eventually tomorrow's just not something you want to be a part of. And so I tried to end my life by suicide. I grabbed a handful of pills and I purposely overdosed. And I can remember the experience because it was distinctly different from the times before when I had almost overdosed several times. I was sitting on my couch and I felt this really unusual feeling of feeling like I was going to pass out and that my heart was going to explode at the same time. And I tried to stand up to sort of maintain some sense of stability. And as I did, I felt my entire right side cramp and it felt like I got stabbed in the side with a hot knife and I cramped and buckled over and all of this, the, my peripheral vision turned black and everything just seemed to fade out. And it was almost as if 
the universe was requesting that I no longer be there. And the feeling that I was dying, and I don't mean the physical feeling that I just described to you. Mm-hmm. I mean the belief that that was the last moment I was going to have on this earth, completely disconnected from everything and everyone that has ever meant anything to me, was the most terrifying experience I've ever had. And believe me when I tell you that I was that person that if you were my friend and you loved me, or you were a family member and you loved me, at some point in the last year of that, of 2012, you would have come up to me and said, don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Mm. Don't you see the pain that you're causing yourself? Don't you see the pain that you're causing your family? Don't you see what's happening to you? What, why are you doing this? And as you said that to me, I would have looked you in the eye and I would have said, fuck you. You don't know what it's like. You don't know the pain I'm in and you don't understand the relief I get for five fucking minutes when I do these drugs or I eat this food. Yeah, I'm sure it's gonna cost me five, 10 years of my life and I'm fine with it. If it costs me those 10 years, fuck it, I don't care. And I think about that now And had I been successful on August 21st of 2012, what would my family not give up for five more years with me? I mean, I would throw that number out there like it meant nothing to me. Mm -hmm. Five years, 10 years, like like it was nothing at all. What would my parents, my brother, my sister do for five days with me? Think about the person in your life who's no longer with you, that you loved deeply, what wouldn't you do for five more minutes with that person? The things that I chose to believe had consequences, not just on me, but on the people that I cared about. And when I regained consciousness after my uh, attempt, I was overwhelmed with this incredible feeling of relief. And that relief was really interesting to me because up until that point, I firmly was in belief that what suicide is, is someone wanting their life to end. But the relief was only there because there must have been something about myself and my life that I loved enough. Mm. Something about myself and my life that was meaningful enough that even though I knew today was going to be the most painful and the hardest day of my life, I was still glad to be there. And what that means is that suicide is never, is never, (coughs) never will be. It will never be someone wanting to end their life. That's not what suicide is. It's someone desperately trying to end their pain. Suicide is a last effort to end pain that seems unsolvable. And there's a pain that has to be shrouded by stigma and shame. We feel like we don't know how we got into this situation. We don't know that it's okay that we don't know how it happened. We don't know that it's okay to say to somebody, I don't know what to do and I'm afraid. And we don't know that it's okay for those other people to not have a solution, Mm. but that we need the opportunity to go to them and say, I feel incredibly alone. I picked up the phone, I called my parents and I asked for help and I checked into rehab about two weeks later, where within 72 hours, I was diagnosed with type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, 
erectile dysfunction, drug-induced bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, attention deficit disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And I was given a cabinet's worth of medication for life. And I sat there in this doctor's office, having gone through an incredibly embarrassing and shameful experience of having nurses examine my body, looking for uh, cuts and scars or infections. The typical experience of checking into rehab is very dehumanizing. Mm. You kind of feel like a criminal. But they did it. They did it for a very specific reason, because people like myself who engaged in substance use disorder are engaging in very dangerous lifestyle behaviors other than just the substances. So they need to know what they're dealing with. They need to make sure you're safe and the people that you're going to be in contact with are safe. And that's why I was diagnosed with everything. They, they found this out. And this doctor was telling me the typical story. Well, this is a result of your genetics. You're genetically predisposed to diabetes and that's why you have diabetes. You must have a family history of heart disease. That's why you have heart disease. Uh, you must have a family history of depression. That's why you have depression. You must have a family history of anxiety and that's why you have anxiety. You must have a family history. You must have a family history. You must have a family history. That's why you are these things. And that's why you're going to need medication for the rest of your life. And I found that to be incredibly insulting. Not that they were insulting me or my family, but what I now know about depression, what I now know about anxiety is that they make complete sense. And when someone says to somebody, hey, the reason why you're depressed and the reason why you're anxious is because of a family history or because of your brain chemistry, what they're also saying to you is that your pain means nothing, that it has of no value, no consequence on the reason why you find yourself feeling this way, that it's not reasonable to assume that what has happened to you has any bearing on the reason why you feel the way you do. And I was, I found myself sort of transported back to the seven days with Rip, where I had luminary thought leaders and doctors saying a very different thing. Mm. painting a very different picture and telling a completely different story. Their story was that the reason why I found myself dealing with diabetes, obesity, heart disease, erectile dysfunction was because that is a very healthy response to someone who eats 5,000 calories of fast food on a regular basis. Yeah. That this is your body's normal physiological response. It makes sense. It's reasonable. And that there is a very reasonable and practical path to reversing it. It's not who and what you are. Now, I didn't know anything about addiction and depression and anxiety at this point. But what I did know was that I was so terrified by that meeting with the doctor that I almost left rehab. And if I hadn't called my dad, I would have. But I called my dad to tell him I was leaving because I told him, look, I came here to get off drugs. Now I find out I have heart disease and diabetes and anxiety and depression and all these other psychological conditions and I can't deal with this shit, I'm out of here. And he's the one who reminded me of all the things that I heard at Rip's retreat. Mm. He said, Adam, you know what? I don't know about anxiety or depression either. I don't know about drug-induced bipolar disorder. I don't know about OCPD. That's something you and I are gonna have to figure out together. But what I'm very confident in, what I'm very confident in is the knowledge that you learned that the conditions you've been, been diagnosed with are likely reversible. 
not only did you learn that, you learned exactly what to do to reverse them. So Adam, if there are things about your life that are painful and you want to change and you can change them, that's not a problem. And if there are things about your life that you don't like, they're painful and you wish they would change, but you can't change them, it's also not a problem. Adam, that means that's just the way things are. And what you and I need to do, and your mother and I and you need to do, is we need to work with your care team to figure out what we can change and what we can't. That conversation changed the trajectory of my dad and I's relationship. Mm. Because what I came to understand is while I believed he was my adversary my whole life, he's been my ally my whole life. Neither of us knew how to communicate that to each other until it got to the worst part of it. They weren't about to let me adopt a high carbohydrate diet with diabetes in rehab. They just weren't. No, of course not. <laughs> it was 2012 yeah. and Cyrus and Robbie hadn't written Mastering Diabetes yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I moved into sober living after 37 days. And in sober living, which is like a halfway house, mm -hmm. I was told that I was going to be allowed to choose the food that I wanted to eat. Fine. Finally, here we go. This is where it's going to happen. The way it works is you go up to the house manager and you write a list and you give it to the house manager and then they go, they send the driver to go pick up groceries and they bring it back and then your groceries are put into the kitchen with everybody else's. Fantastic. Okay. One issue, the only greens I used to eat up until that point were the occasional piece of lettuce they didn't take off my burger at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. And number two, I could only remember a few things from the cafeteria and the meals at Rip's retreats. Yeah. I remember oatmeal was always for breakfast. Great, I wrote oatmeal. I remember rice and beans was like a big thing they talked about. Everybody should be eating rice and beans. So I wrote rice and beans, canned beans, microwavable rice. Obviously I thought, okay, vegetables, just get me frozen veggies. And then I remember one day there was a potato bar. So I said, please get me potatoes and fruit. This incredibly short list. I walk up and give it to the house manager whose last name is literally hamburger. <laughs> I give him the list and he goes and gets me this stuff. And I'm going to tell you, I woke up the next day and it was like a cosmic joke because somebody had the audacity to put the oatmeal next to Fruity Pebbles. Now, oh. I don't know about you, but Fruity Pebbles is the best cereal ever made, period, end of story. No, okay? uh, no. I like <laughs> I can't agree with that. I was more of a Cocoa Puffs kind of girl back in the I was day. all about Fruity Pebbles. Okay, okay. <laughs> and I literally saw this and I like lost my shit. Like oh. I got angry. I stormed out. I like threw this fit. The house manager had to come like running down the Santa Monica boardwalk to get me. And the reason why I was upset was because I couldn't figure it out. I was so angry because even though they had gotten me everything I wanted, I didn't want to do it. Mm. I still would have rather picked the Fruity Pebbles. So much so that saying no to it made me want to cry. And I couldn't understand why this wasn't a matter of intellect and will. Right? Why can I not want to do it, know how to do it, and then that's it. Game over. Yeah. And I read a book by a guy named Doug Lyle. Dr. Doug Lyle is an evolutionary psychologist who wrote a book called The Pleasure Trap. Mm. And this book describes the biological mechanism that compels us to choose one thing or the other. And essentially, 
we have a guidance system built inside of us that helps us figure out how to make the most successful decision to increase our statistical likelihood of survival. But this guidance system has been crafted and perfected throughout the human evolutionary story, which were environments of scarcity. Mm. So let me explain what I mean. If you and I were to travel back in time 20, 30,000 years from now, and we were find ourselves in a tribe, in a village, and our job, you and I, was to go out into the wilderness and find food for the village. Number, there's a few things. First, food was scarce. We didn't know how much there was, and we didn't know where it was. Finding it was dangerous, meaning that the terrain that we had to travel was dangerous. It cost us a lot of energy, and it was incredibly competitive. We weren't the only ones looking for those calories. And again, we either get them or we don't. So we have to have some kind of mechanism in our body and our biology that helps us figure out in an environment of scarcity, which caloric choice is the most successful one to make. Mm, So you and I find ourselves next to a, this would probably never happen, but like a plantain tree and and a blueberry bush, right? And we go, okay, we got two choices here. We can either spend our time gathering the blueberries or we can spend our time gathering the plantains. How are we gonna figure out which one is the better choice? We do it by tasting them. So we taste the blueberries and we get a lift in our dopamine circuitry. And that lift tells us that there's something about this decision that gives us a statistical likelihood of survival. There's calories per bite. There's pleasure there. Yeah. Our guidance system is trying to figure out how we get the most pleasure for the least pain and the least amount of energy. Then we walk over and there's some plantains that have fallen down and we peel one over and we eat it and we go, oh my gosh. We get a lift in the dopamine circuitry that's about 100 times greater because that's about how many more times of calories there are in a, in a bite of a plantain than a you know, blueberry. Yeah, totally. It's very obvious which decision to make. Right. And our dopamine guidance system has allowed us to figure this out with incredible ease. If we spend our time gathering the plantains, we're going to get about a thousand calories or sorry, about a hundred percent or a hundred times more calories per bite per person. than if we choose the blueberries, we know to make this choice. Right. We know to make this choice every single time. Meaning that the more calories present in a food, the more successful it feels. Right. But in the modern environment, that guidance system has no idea that we now have more calories per bite than have ever existed in human history. And the ease that we can repeat those decisions is greater than it's ever been. It costs us less energy to do so than has ever existed in human history. And all of this shame was lifted from my shoulders because I thought the reason why it was difficult for me to make this choice was because I lacked discipline mm. or I lacked enough willpower or self-control. But what I came to understand was that I had habituated to a modern environment where in order to feel like I was making successful choices, I needed to eat foods that created a very high dopamine response. And when we've habituated to that response, normal foods, foods that we have been designed by nature to thrive on, feel unsuccessful. This is why people tend to say, well, if I know that eating sweet potatoes is better than the candy bar, why is it so difficult to do it? It feels wrong. (laughs) When you've been eating candy bars for long enough, the sweet potato will always feel less successful to you, even though the candy bar is a self-destructive choice. It's the same with like 
meat versus plants, right? Like meat is so, so calorie dense that people then let's say try to eat plant-based for a week and they feel like they're totally missing out on something. They're not being full. It just doesn't work for them, but it's that same concept where it's like, you've been, you know, trained to think that like you need this calorie dense food when in reality you don't. And it's exactly it. And what, what the, what his book also talks about is that there's about a two week period of, of resensitizing your mm. dopamine receptors that after about two weeks, your dopamine receptors gain, regain sensitivity and healthy whole natural food starts to taste the way it should. Yeah. You get, you get the same response that you normally got from the, the super normal food you're eating. Only now you're eating healthy food. Essentially, I just had to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, totally. And in order to do that, people will say, all right, well, so, all right, you got to have a why, right? We all know that story. Yeah, got to have What's a your why? why. Yeah. And from the outside looking in, it would look like, oh, it's his obesity, it's his drug addiction, it's his diabetes, that's got to be it. No, sorry, bullshit. Nobody is motivated by negative consequences. What negative consequences do is they let you know that there are loving and meaningful bonds in your life that are being threatened. Mm. Otherwise... There would be no reason to change. There would be no reason to learn something new or do something different. It is those loving and meaningful bonds in your life. That's why we do what we do. That's why we do something different or learn to do something better. That's why we are willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to be more authentically and fully connected to loving and meaningful bonds in our life that give us the experience of being alive. And so I told myself every single day that I would make decisions specifically geared towards reconnecting myself to those loving and meaningful bonds. If I'm doing it that way, I'm never avoiding meat, eggs, and dairy. I'm very purposefully choosing fiber-rich, whole-carbohydrate plant foods because it's not about what I don't want. It's about what I do want. In order to get what I want, I have to know exactly what to do. Mm. And after six months, I completely reversed my diabetes, my heart disease, my erectile dysfunction, Within 10 months, I lost over 100 pounds. And within a year, I was off of every single medication I was put on rehab, the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, the anxiety medications, the ADHD medications. Uh, this year, I celebrate 10 years of sobriety. Um, That's and Congrats. I was shocked to find that not a single study existed on the impact of diet and addiction recovery outcomes. Not one. Mm-mm. And I found that to be really remarkable considering the remarkable experience I had had with food in addiction recovery. And everywhere you go, they talk about, oh, you got to eat omega-3 fatty in recovery. You got to eat fish for that. You got to do this. You got to do that. And I'm like, well, that's great. Where's the data? And that's so true. That's actually so true. So my best friend, she didn't make it out alive from her experience. She, uh, when she first got out of rehab, she went on and on for like an hour about how much fish she needs to eat. And I was like, what the heck? So it's interesting that you saying this, that I was like, I'm like, yeah, that's so true. That just the only, it's the only dietary advice that they gave her was to eat fish. Every single dietitian and nutritionist I met with while in, in rehab and I was in recovery. I was in rehab for 37 days and then sober living for 10 months. Yeah. Every single one of them brought up, I should be eating fish every single one of them. And they couldn't point me towards any research on addiction recovery, brain health and fish consumption. So I did the study. Yeah. So we just finished four years of work 
investigating the effects of plant-based nutrition and standard Western nutrition. So it's more like a paleo style diet uh, was the control diet and the treatment diet was a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, and we investigated the effects of those diets on early addiction recovery outcomes. And we're publishing four manuscripts this year into the medical literature and it's remarkable. So but, cool. Uh, it's so cool. I mean, yeah. that is when I heard about that study, it was like one of my main motivators to have you on the show because yeah. like I just said, I, my best friend was an addict. I've had family members mm -hmm. who are addicts. Like I've had friends in high school die of heroin addiction. Like yeah. it's just surrounded my life so much. And I've known so many people to go to rehab. And it's really interesting because there's also this weird thing where it's like, I feel like we're kind of taught to like not talk to people about the other aspects of their life that could be causing them to, I'll just blanket it and say, be unhealthy. But it's like, you know, if sure. someone's sober, all you want to focus on is like, okay, they're sober. We're walking on eggshells. Don't talk about their diet. Don't talk about their mental health. Yep. Don't talk about their anxiety. Like they're sober. That's all we need to focus on. And it just always felt like there was something missing. Like it just always felt like, well, why is diet not connected? Why are we not treating the yeah. whole person? And the reason why that is, is because we have a societal narrative around addiction. Right. And it's built around that dependency model that I talked to you about. So the standard story will be that a person checks into treatment. And let's say this person is uh, abusing heroin. Right. Okay. And what they'll say to this person is the reason why you can't stop using heroin is because heroin is addictive. So your problem is heroin. And what we need you to do is we need you to accept that you have this problem that you always will have this problem and you need to abstain from using heroin for the rest of your life. The best support system we can tell you to do is to get yourself to commit to a group of individuals where you affirm this identity about yourself to that group on a regular basis in order to abstain from it long enough. And if you abstain from it long enough, your life should get better. Mm. That's the story. And that's not, an accurate depiction of what we know addiction is when we look at real world observations. So when we look at real world observations, we look at people who suffer with substance abuse. They're not abusing heroin because heroin is addictive. They're abusing heroin because their life is too painful. And heroin is a very successful way of relieving that pain when no other solution exists with as much ease and repeatability. Yeah, that's really important. And so the abstinence story means that the goal for you is to not use. Well, passive recovery has a very miserable track record. In fact, the standard recovery model has about an 85% failure rate. And what I mean by that is 85% of the people who check into treatment today will be back in treatment within one year. Yeah. And so what we need to start doing is start asking the question of instead, why is your using a problem? Why does your using make sense? Why does it make sense that given what's going on in your life, heroin is a reasonable choice for you? If we do that, then we can say to this person, hey, I believe you that your life is hard. And I fully believe that heroin is a phenomenal solution to that pain. But I also know it's a very self-destructive solution and it's likely going to make your life harder you just don't know it yet because of how successful it feels. Right. You might even start to be aware of the severing of bonds and ties in your life that is happening as a result of the use, but the use feels so successful, it's hard for you to say no to it. What we need to help this person do 
is to reconnect themselves to those loving and meaningful bonds. Let me give you an example. Take a person who's struggling, is dealing with a lot of issues in their life. There's about five, four or five meaningful bonds in your life that are going to give you the experience of being alive in a meaningful way. A loving and meaningful bond with yourself, both physically and emotionally. You want to show up and be present for every day. Mm-hmm. A loving and meaningful bond with other people in your life that you want to show up and be present for every day. A loving and meaningful bond with a purpose beyond yourself within a community of shared respect that you want to show up and be present for every single day. And a future that feels safe that you want to show up and work for every single day. When those bonds are severed, life is incredibly painful. Yeah. Feels isolating. You feel a lack of purpose. Your future doesn't feel like anything you want to be a part of. You have no one to share it with. Okay, this is really important. Remember, what? there's a great quote, loneliness isn't the physical absence of people. It's the sense that you have nothing of value to share with anyone. When you take that person and you were to say, go over and hang out with them at their place, and you're both drinking water, and into their water, you slip them heroin. They didn't know it. They drank it. And after they finished the drink, you said, just so you know, I put heroin in your drink. What's going to happen is they're going to have a euphoric experience. They're going to be relieved of the knowledge of their pain and disconnection. They're going to feel finally relieved in an incredibly successful way that they may have been searching for to not know how painful their life has become. After the high is over, you'll say, hey, just so you know, I have as much heroin as you want and I can get it for you anytime you want it. Would you like more? In this state of extreme disconnection, that yeah. person is very likely to say yes. Now take this person and say, change the situation, reconnect them to themselves and to their life. They now have a relationship with themselves, both physically and emotionally, that they want to be a part of every single day, people they want to be with every single day, a purpose within a community that they want to share and be a part of every single day. And now their future feels safe and valuable, and they want to be a part of it. Go over to their house, slip heroin into their drink without them knowing it. They're going to have the same experience that they had before. Then say, hey, I can get you as much of that as you want. Do you want it? The likelihood of them saying yes is far less. Yeah, totally. The reason why it's less is because it threatens their ability to be present with what matters to them. When they're fully connected to a, a, a meaningful and loving life, they want to be a part of it every single day. They don't want to feel separate from it. They don't need the relief that it happens. Might they use? Sure, but it will likely be convivial. It will likely be seldom and random. And it certainly won't be damaging and habitual. This has actually been studied. Uh, Professor Bruce Alexander in Canada did a study called Rat Park, where you take, they took, you know the story, you put a rat in a cage and you give it a choice between food or heroin. Yeah. And then once it tastes the heroin, it's going to do heroin until it dies. Professor Bruce Alexander looked at that study. He goes, hang on a second. It's a rat in an empty cage. He has only food or heroin to do. What happens if you create what he did, which is called Rat Park, where he made heaven for rats? Essentially, there was loads of other rats that it could interact with. It could have sex with them. It could build families. It had toys. It had food. And they put heroin in there. What he found in Rat Park is the rats don't like the heroin. They rarely ever do it. None of them do it compulsively. And none of them ever overdose from it. Mm. So the question is, is drug addiction an adaptation to the substance? Or is it an adaptation to the cage you find yourself in? 
Oh, 1000%. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting too. I mean, I, it's so funny talking to you. I've been transported back to like so many different times in my life and like <laughs> different friends and relationships. And like, you know, I went to a high school where I was friends with all the skater boys, whatever, like so many of my friends yeah. got addicted to heroin and every, and we all accidentally did it once, or there was always like, we were at a party and something would happen or yeah. someone would say it was weed and we, it was the heroin or whatever. And it was like the friends that ended up getting addicted to it were the friends that were going through a really tough time at home. So like their yeah. parents were divorcing or like my friend's brother had just died. Like there was like things that were going on and then heroin exactly was like this perfect thing. And society looks at these kids as like, oh, they're just, you know, they're just yeah. whatever. I don't know the right word right now, but like, they're just, yeah. they're kind of shunned and put to the side instead of being like, wow, this, yeah. this, this person's really hurting. And there's no access of anything to help them other than this substance right now. So it does make total sense that like, that's there you go what they went to because it's the only thing that makes them feel safe or okay or held. And because they're not given the tools to ask somebody for help. Yeah. They get to do this thing called heroin alone mm -hmm. and they get to feel relief alone. Yeah. And as long as they can do that and feel the relief, it's easier. It's yeah. easier when society doesn't give you an option to figure other things out with mm -hmm. as much ease as heroin did for them. Right. So yeah, it makes complete sense mm -hmm. that that's the route they would go. Right. But what we're trying to do is paint a picture that as long as heroin exists, that's the problem. Well, I'm sorry, but let's look at what happened with alcohol during prohibition. Right. During prohibition, alcohol killed people every night. The reason why is because when it's illegal, it's controlled by criminal enterprises, which right. means you're buying unknown substances of unknown potency from unknown people using unknown criminal elements, right? If you're gonna buy alcohol and you can only get a few, you know, few shots, you're gonna wanna get the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah. And when you do that during prohibition, when it's unregulated, you die of alcohol poisoning. And that happened all the time. Right. When they ended prohibition, they regulated the use. You knew who was buying it, from who you were buying it from, what potency it was, that you were safe and that you were taken care of. The number of overdoses from alcohol after prohibition ended dropped about 90%, if not greater. Right. right. We've seen this happen with heroin. Switzerland, I believe it's Switzerland or Sweden, uh, had a massive heroin problem where about 1% of its population was addicted to heroin. That's a big problem. Yeah. And so the prime minister of health said, I want to decriminalize heroin use for heroin addicts. And people said, you can't do that. They're already dying from overdoses. Now you're going to have people dying all the time. It's chaos. And she said, no, I'm sorry. Chaos is, like I said, unknown people buying unknown substances of unknown potency from unknown people in unknown places. What I want to do is I want to know who's using it, how much they're using, that they're safe, that they're cared for, and that we're there for them. The number of overdoses from heroin since is zero. Mm. People don't overdose from drugs because drugs exist people overdose from drugs because they have to get them from the most dangerous people on the planet in an unregulated market and they have to do it alone in shame. That's yeah. why it happens. Yeah. The shame part is huge too, like, especially in society. And I, I find it really interesting what you said about how 85% of people go back to rehab and my, my yeah. mind immediately went to the sick care system that we find yeah, ourselves exactly. in. And it, it also goes to the idea that like 
you know, Bayer bought Monsanto, which is like the biggest seed producing company, the biggest chemical producing company, the biggest pharmaceutical producing company. And then when we connect it back to your story of the whole thing, starting with Ritalin and Adderall, which is from a pharmaceutical, you really see how this entire thing is connected to everything. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just a drug problem. It's not just an addict problem. It's like the whole systemic problem. And it's, it's, it, you know, yeah, I, I thought when you said, when you said 85%, I was like, wow, that's a genius business model. You know what I mean? They're getting an 85% return rate for people to come back to rehab oh, absolutely. And, and rehab's not cheap, you know? So it's really interesting. No, it's a, it it's a 14 way. billion, it's a $14 billion industry in this country yeah. alone. That's what it is. Do they want people to get well? That's, that's my other thought. Like probably, I, I mean, think people do. I think yeah. people for the most part have good intentions. I think that what they're doing is they're trying to recreate the same system that's already failing people right now. And then when you start to make money, it's very difficult for you to say we should change this because what what I'm doing right now, people are getting better. There is a percentage of people that are seeing results and I'm just going to look at them while also making a living. It's very hard when you're into it like that to get out of it. It's very right. hard to to change it when you're already so inundated in a system that is designed for failure yet allows enough success that you feel good enough about it, right? Mm. Um, and the shame part that you mentioned is is so real. Uh, there's there's data that came out of the 1980s out of San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Um, and the the statistic is, and now this is correlation, but I think it's really important, is that closeted homosexuals receiving the same treatment for AIDS at the same time as openly gay homosexuals died two years earlier. Mm. That's really important. Ones who were ashamed or felt too ashamed to say who they really were, receiving the same treatment at the same time as people who had been given permission to be themselves without shame died two years earlier. It's almost as if the shame killed them faster. That's really important, especially when we're talking about an epidemic of substance abuse that is cloaked in shame and cloaked in stigma to such a degree that so many people, there was a statistic, a study that came out on uh, Americans and the, the least liked groups of people. The least liked groups of people are drug addicts, homeless, and vegans which is interesting. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Oh my I God. I was like, is he going to say vegans? <laughs> what's, what's interesting about that is that at one point in time, I was almost a homeless drug addict and then I became a vegan. So I've never been liked. <laughs> it's a rebel, just societal rebel. Wow. That's really interesting. I mean, it makes yeah. sense though. So, I mean, we're, 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 tra- you know, we're trained to not look homeless people in the eye. I mean, as a woman, I lived in San Francisco for a long time. I like no eye contact ever, you know, but now I live in San Diego. I feel much safer living here and I still do it. And I don't know why. And even, you know, dealing with people with addiction, like there's this rhetoric, like I'm still learning how to talk to people because I have so much anger within myself of losing my best friend to addiction last year of losing friends in high school to addiction, losing family members, relationships. So from the other side of it, you get angry and then that translates to shame, right? It translates to being like, well, I don't accept you in this state. Like, why can't you be better? Which is something that I create separation. 
Right. It, it creates separation. And, uh, and I'm sorry for your loss. And I know how you feel because uh, I've lost six friends to suicide and overdose since mm-hmm. getting sober. Unfortunately, when you once you get into the recovery world and you make friends in recovery, you have to be prepared to lose a certain amount of them. Yeah. Um, and I feel so badly for, for this because every single one of them had the capacity for change. Right. Every single one of them had the same capacity for change that I had. Maybe they didn't have the same support system. Mm. which is huge. Yeah, totally. I was surrounded by people who loved and supported me. Uh, and I also believe that a lot of them just at a certain point in time were being told this story that the reason why you're struggling is because you're using. The reason why you're an addict is because you always have been and you always will be. And that the best you can do and the best you can hope for is to will yourself through your life through grit and determination abstain from substance abuse and if you can do that your life will get better well no one can outcompete their environment long enough that's just not what's going to happen and there's only two avenues of life where anything less than perfect is considered a failure mm. And that's substance abuse recovery and that's diet culture Mm. where any choice other than the choice you're trying to make in any amount is equally wrong. Mm. Context is of no matter here. And that's a damaging narrative to put into somebody's mind. And I'll I'll explain it to you and to the listeners with a story. If anything less than perfect is considered a failure, then any amount at any time is equally wrong. Let's take, for example, what happens a lot of the time in recovery. Somebody has been an alcoholic for a decade, drinking a bottle or more a day of liquor, discovers that their life is not going to get better at any time soon. In fact, it's likely going to get worse unless something changes. So they check into treatment and they get, they get sober. And they're actively engaged in recovery. Where instead of simply not using, they've decided to replace using with something beneficial in their life. Say it's fitness, say it's yoga, say it's meditation, whether they're in an active state of recovery. And they go 365 days without using. Instead of saying without using, 365 days of actively engaging in beneficial lifestyle behaviors. And then something happens. Something happens that challenges their distress tolerance to levels not yet tested while in this new state of their life. A very close friend or loved one passes away. Something, a tragedy occurs. The next thing they know, they find themselves at a bar because it was instinctual to them. When things get that hard, you go to the bar and maybe they order a drink and the bartender puts it in front of them. Maybe they have a sip, maybe they drink the whole thing. And before they order the next one or before they take their next sip, they step back and they say, hang on a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, don't, I don't know why I came here. I need to figure this out. This is not how I want to engage in my life anymore. This was a tough situation and I don't know how to do this. I need to figure this out. And they walk away. Now, in the current recovery model, that's their recovery failing them. Yeah. That's an yeah. indication that their program that they have designed is not good enough and they cannot step away 
from all the people who've been saying you have to come back here and keep counting days and keep calling yourself an addict and keep doing all this stuff because look how you have not yet got it. Mm. Or you can look at it like this, a person who had spent every day of 10 years numbing themselves with alcohol was put into an incredible tragic situation after yeah. a year of changing their life and after one sip of alcohol decided to take a different path. That's the recovery winning. Because if we don't make if we make anything less than perfect a failure, you almost are guaranteed to fail. Yeah. If you give someone the gift of context where you say, what's the situation? Why did you end up in there? What was your next choice? If your next choice is progress, you're winning. Yeah. Well, it's like almost you taking need to that, create that story. It's taking the humanity out of it, right? It's like asking people yeah. to be robotic almost and being like, okay, you have exactly. to, it's this path or this path. There's no gray area and that's it. I yeah. want to quote you. You said, once I stopped rereading the first half of my life, I was able to start writing this part. And I really love that, yeah. especially what you're talking about when you say like, hi, like I'm blah, blah, blah. And I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic or whatever. And you repeat that every single day. And I, especially I think about my, my, my friend a lot. When I think about her, she identified because of all the recovery programs she went to, she identified so much with her struggle. Like she was an addict. Mm -hmm. She was her pain. That's who she was. It was like, she wasn't anything outside of that. And I think that's because it got so drilled into her head that that's who she had to claim herself to be in order to, I guess not be that, but I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on that because it feels like counterintuitive yeah. almost. So what if if I could if I could rid a statement from the human experience, it would be once an addict, always an addict. Mm. I wish we would give people to say, once a human in pain trying to relieve that pain, always a human in pain trying to figure out a better way to do it. Yeah. If we could use that as the statement, then we could say the reason why you're using is because your pain makes sense and the decisions that you know to the best of your knowledge at this point is to go this direction. Mm -hmm. And if you knew how to go this direction with enough ease, you would have. Yeah. I believe that if people could do better with enough ease and enough access, they would. There's not a person in the world who's struggling with substance abuse to the point to where they're pulling water into a syringe out of a gutter in an alley who have given the opportunity to change their life with enough ease would say no to it. Yeah. I firmly believe that. And I firmly believe that so many of my friends were sold the story that they're always going to struggle their entire life with their substances, because if they ever do use, it's an indication that they haven't got it yet. And a lot of them had several relapses, but they weren't the same kind of use as they had been before they checked into treatment. Mm. It was them figuring it out. They made a mistake. They figured out what not to do again in the future. And now they need to retrain or learn tools in order to not go that direction again or do it less, a lot less often over the course of time. If people were given permission to be human in recovery, I think you'd see a lot more recovery. Mm. And I've lost so, I, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to talk about because several of them were some of my closest friends. Um, and I think for anybody who's listening, if you, uh, if you know someone who's struggling, if you know someone who's in pain, you don't need to have answers. You don't need to know what to say to this person. And I know this from experience 
more than more so than solutions to our problems we just want to know we've not been forgotten by the people who matter most to us we want to know that somebody will sit with us when sitting with ourselves is too painful a thing to do someone who will put their arms around us when we can't hold ourselves someone who will say i love you when that's too hard to say to ourselves i know it sounds simple but from when i was in pain someone doing that for me softened my entire world all you need to do is call this person and say i love you i love you whether you're using or you're not i love you whatever state you're in and if you ever need me i will be there for you because i don't want you to be alone or feel alone i think um too many people feel incredibly alone right now mm -hmm. And we think that our job is to solve that for them rather than just be there for them. Yeah. If we can just be there for them, I think that we can change a lot about the way that we interact with each other. Um, I wish, I wish I had been able to do that for some of my friends who are here. Um, and so if you know someone, after you listen to this, just send them a text, give them a call. Just ask them if, if, if you'd like to come, if you'd like them to come over, if, you, if they want you to come over, you want to take them for coffee. Do not try to solve their life for them because they don't know the answer, mm. but they know that they're alone right now. And that's what they don't want anymore. Yeah. Damn. You're making me feel all the feelings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, I have 10 years of recovery. Uh, I'm getting married in December. Um, to the most incredible woman in the world. I have a relationship with my parents uh, like I, uh, that I couldn't imagine. Um, I'm the happiest, fittest, healthiest I've ever been. And for that person who may be the one who is struggling right now, if you're on that, if you're on that edge where you're thinking about life not being worth it anymore, I'm going to tell you, I cannot believe that my life almost ended right before the best part ever began. Mm. You do not know when that moment's going to happen where everything changes for you. Please, please, please do not give up. There are resources you can call. There are numbers you can call. They will cost you nothing but your time. And someone will be on the other end of that phone and they'll listen to you. There's a suicide hotline. There's recovery hotlines. There's, there's numbers to call for depression. There's, there's free services out there. Every single one of those is a better choice. Hmm. Every single one of those. There's far better choices that exist in life than exist in ending it. Please pick any one of those choices that exist in life and just keep going. So well said, man, you're so amazing. Thank you so much oh. for just opening up. We, I know we just met, but I'm like, did we just yeah. become best friends? No. Um, <laughs> if you have just like a little more time, I would really like to talk yeah. about um, just like the results of yeah the, the, um, the study. Uh, the yeah. study. Yeah. Sorry. I'm like, now I'm just all <laughs> in my feelings, but yeah, I would love to just talk about the study just a little bit if you have some more time. Yeah. So interestingly, what we were looking at was the impact that a nutrient dense plant-based diet. So not just a vegan diet, but a nutrient dense plant-based diet would have yeah. on early addiction recovery outcomes compared to 
the standard diet that they serve in recovery today. And we, we compared the results across all fields of measurement. So biometric measurements, blood lipid panels, omega-3 levels, vitamins, the whole thing. We also looked at depression and anxiety scores and emotional and psychological scores. So depression, anxiety, mania, obsessive compulsive drug use. Mm. And then we looked at a se several other things that we found to be very, very important. Self-esteem, self-compassion, and resilience. Mm. I think these are incredibly important. Self-esteem in particular and resilience in particular. Uh, resilience is the, is the ability to be faced and confronted with a difficult moment and either draw on known positive tools or newly learned positive tools in order to engage in that difficult moment in a positive way. And self-esteem and self-compassion, obviously we know self-compassion is the ability to love yourself as if you were anyone who are struggling, right? to show compassion to yourself as if you were, I'll say it like this, if your best friend were in a, having a bad day, do you talk to them the same way you talk to yourself when you're having a bad day? If you don't, you need to, perhaps learning more about self-compassion might serve you. Mm. Self-esteem is important because typically within psychology, self-esteem is thought about as the ego, right? Right. But really what we know to be true is that self-esteem is like an internal audience. Okay, self-esteem is like the world responding to you as if it were watching you do what you do, right? And the value that your behavior has and the sense of value that the world would think that you have to offer them if you had the opportunity. Here's why that's important. The study showed that after 10 weeks, aside from the biometric stuff, the people with a higher dietary quality, meaning the plant-based group, had higher levels of resilience, self-esteem, and self-compassion. Mm. Here's why we think that's true. Instead of simply not using, which is what the control group does, they checked in and they just stopped using. They ate a Western diet, they did Western things, they essentially were given medications like they were everyone else. Everything else was controlled. Yeah. But they just not stopped using. That's passive sobriety, passive recovery. Right. This other group decided to, instead of use, which is a sacrifice to them at that point, not use, they've replaced it with something else that seems like a sacrifice to the rest of the world. But this is this is where it gets interesting. There's an ego trap with not using. Because if I was to say to you, hey, I've been a substance abuser for 10 years and now I'm just not going to use, the rest of the world, in my opinion, the way that I see it would say, well, great, we don't use it all every single day. So welcome to the club. You're back to square one. Like it's not something seen by society as worthy of applause, mm. worthy of recognition. The rest of the world seemingly doesn't use. If I was to go outside and look outside my window, most of the people I see don't seem to be using. They seem to have their life together. So there's not a lot of value that I seem to have acquired that I could offer any of them. Although it does now feel I like, plant I was gonna, sorry, I was just going to say, although it does yeah. feel like everyone's a functioning alcoholic right now. Exactly. Just... But you don't know it. You can't see it. You yeah. can't see it. Mm -hmm. Now you adopt a plant-based diet and you gain an understanding of the value that that nutrition and that nutrition protocol offers you. Mm -hmm. And let's say you start to feel better. Let's say you start to lose some weight. 
let's say you reverse a chronic disease, all of a sudden, you now have a sense that you figured something out that the rest of the world has not been able to figure out. If I was to look outside my window right now, it looked like most people are struggling with their weight. Yeah. Likely do not have any sense of what a healthy diet looks like. Mm. May likely be on medications. Yeah. And most of them are obsessed with diet culture. They're trying to figure out how to not be that anymore. I seem to have figured out something that if necessary, the rest of the world would love for me to share with them. For somebody who's been a struggling substance abuser to have value that the rest of the world sees as valuable will raise your self-esteem. It's incredibly important. This is essentially why we think we see the self-esteem level raise. We also saw resilience go up and we also Mm -hmm. saw self-compassion go up. We don't know the mechanisms involved yet in why we saw resilience increase and why we saw self-compassion increase, but it's statistically significant. Wow. What we've also discovered is for the very first time, we have proven that in no aspect of recovery does a plant-based diet uh, compromise your recovery. Mm. There's been a belief that you're going to be lacking in certain things necessary to fully recover your biochemistry from substances. Not only have we shown that there is not one avenue of recovery and your biochemistry that is lacking on a plant-based diet, in several, it does better. This is the first time this has ever been shown, and we're really excited to publish it this year into the medical journals. So that's about as much as I'm allowed to share at this point. Yeah. It's really exciting. That's so interesting too, because when you think about like the, I don't know, like the added hormones or antibiotics or, you know, all the shit that's pumped into, into meat, into animals, you know, and then you go ahead and you eat that. And I also talk a lot about like, you know, petrified meat too, like eating anxiety, eating all of these things. Mm. Like when you kind of eliminate that aspect on an energetic and also like a chemical level, and you're able yeah. to just eat food that has like positive energy that has no chemicals. Yeah. That's kind of like you kind of rid from that. Then I feel like it's easier to heal and really focus on just kind of like, your whole body healing versus internally fighting other things as well. That's coming from your diet. We had some amazing, cause we did in addition to all the quantitative data that we captured, we captured qualitative stories of the participants that went through the study. And we had individuals who are on the plant-based diet saying, this isn't my first, second or third time in recovery, but this felt different than the Mm. other times. Interesting. And I feel more connected to my self care. I feel more connected to my daily actions of recovery. Food has become a, an anchor point for positive change throughout my day. Because here's the thing, people who check into substance abuse treatment are usually underfed or un- and undernourished or overfed and undernourished, right? Yes, they, yes. They prioritize using over the main self-hygiene and self-care acts to a great degree. Or I would say so, that like eating disorders and substance abuse go hand in hand as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's you know, eating disorder. While this wasn't an eating disorder clinic, we did, um, we did measure eating disorder scales. Mm. So, but this wasn't an eating disorder treatment facility. Right. So these individuals weren't there specifically for eating disorders. So I don't want to put it out there that we've solved eating disorder. Of course not. Yeah. Look, eating, dis- eating disorder isn't solved by food. Yeah. Right. 
if eating disorder were solved by food, we'd just feed people and then they'd be fine. Um, <laughs> totally. <laughs> that's, that's not what it is. Unfortunately, yeah. eating disorder treatment facilities just want you weight restored and then they consider that success, which is the same thing as we just want you off your substance and then we consider that success. Right. So there's equal parts that need change. Um, but we saw these qualitative stories of people talking about the experience they had on a plant-based diet and the recognition of the value that they could contribute to themselves and to others around them just by owning the knowledge of what this diet does for their health, creating a healthy and safe future for themselves, and positively impacting the environment and the animals around them, not only today, but into the future. Again, remember what I talked about, so much of anxiety and depression is about a future that doesn't feel safe. Mm. Well, if you check into treatment and you're, you have substance abuse, but you're also sick, your future still doesn't seem safe to you, even if you're off the substance. Even if you're overweight, you have diabetes or heart disease, great, you're yeah. not using more. The future still doesn't seem like a safe place to be. Yeah. Plant-based nutrition offers you an opportunity to change that picture to a safe future that you're moving towards. That's huge. And so we're really excited about it. Wow. That's like groundbreaking, honestly. Like Yeah groundbreaking. (laughs) I really, I mean, it's the idea that, you know, I, the people that are trying really hard to get plant-based food in hospitals or healthy food in hospitals, it's like the same thing. It's like the correlation of like this idea of sick care and really changing it into actual health care in the idea of like, yeah. I was just in the hospital nine weeks ago. I had a very serious mountain biking accident. Um, I'm permanently part of the crooked collarbone club because I broke this collarbone. I broke five of my ribs and my right lung collapsed. Oh, fuck. So I was in the hospital with a chest tube for three days. They were reinflating my lung. Um, And funny enough, I was in Asheville, North Carolina at Mission Health Hospital. Do you know who Dr. Garth Davis is? I don't know. He wrote the book Proteinaholic. Um, I don't know. He's... So he is one of the most famous plant-based doctors out there. He's been in like, I was going to say, it sounds like so familiar. Okay. Yeah. 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 He was in what the health and all those movies. Yeah. Um, He's a weight loss bariatric surgeon and he ran a plant-based program at mission health, but he had left because it got purchased by another hospital uh, company that removed that program. And so here I am in the hospital, the hospital that was the hospital to Garth Davis, and they could not figure out what a vegan diet was and serve me one vegan meal the entire four days I was there. I had to order burritos from Moe's and have them delivered because they oh were my out God. food. And by the time they delivered me steak salad one day, oh my God, uh, pasta with cheese sauce. When they were like, "Wait, you can't eat cheese either." I'm like, "How in the world is it 2022?" And your dietitians do not know what a vegan diet is. This is unacceptable. So it doesn't oh my even God. matter if you tell them you're healthy in a hospital, they still can't get it right. That it's, is, it's nuts. So if you're, it like reminds me of like all the dietitians that like come after me on like TikTok yeah. or something about veganism. I'm like, you guys aren't taught anything yeah. about plant-based foods at all. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not. Up. I mean, think about it. If the hospital that used to be home to Garth Davis. That's crazy. Doesn't have the ability to get a plant-based diet right. What chance does the rest of the world have? No, of course not. And, and it's like- I remember this- I was texting Garth about it. He's like, this is ridiculous. He's like, one of the reasons I left. 
<laughs> that is insane. And it just perpetuates the same problems. You know, it's like this, like I said before, it's a genius business model. They get repeat customers, but it's like, oh, yeah. you know, when people are, you know, it's, it's life or death a lot of times, like, you know, in these yeah. situations in hospitals, it's life or death. So if they're surviving off of, you know, red dye 40 jello with gelatin and like high fructose corn syrup, and that's what they're eating, whether it's life or death, like they're going to die. Like it's, it's, or they're given, they're given a steak salad right after a heart procedure, Ugh. you know, like red meat right after they've had some kind of heart procedure due to cardiovascular disease it's, it's just angry it's crazy but i don't know why it more changes happening we've got great people eric yeah. adams is doing a lot of great things in new york so uh you know the new mayor yeah. of new york city is vegan yeah he's doing a lot of great things so i yeah. know my my dad's a new yorker he really like pushed back like i've been because my dad's had high blood pressure i've always been like dad you gotta you gotta like eat more plant-based and then because he's from new york That's and right. it's like very yeah. anti-new york to be vegan you know oh yeah and then once the mayor was a vegan i was like see <laughs> like yeah <laughs> and here's the thing for people who aren't vegan who might be listening to this yeah what you want to do is it's not the individual foods that make the metabolic outcome it's the quality of your dietary pattern yeah. over the course of time mm -hmm. so if you're eating a plant predominant diet where 80 to 90 percent of your calories your calories not 80 percent of your plate but 80 to 90% of your calories Important. are coming from whole intact plant foods, that pattern is likely to show you drastic positive change. Yes. So if going all in is scary, you can make unbelievable and remarkable differences in your health by adopting a plant predominant diet. And if you can see the value in plant predominant, it might influence you to say, maybe, hey, what does 95% look like? Right. What does 100 look like? But again, we got to drop the idea that anything less than perfect is considered a failure because it's not. The research yeah. is really clear that a plant predominant diet does just as much good for people who are sick mm. as a plant exclusive diet and offers the same opportunity to shift the environmental hazards we're going towards, make a fundamental change in the animal agriculture landscape that we see, right? It's not all in. I would rather have a million people eating an 80 to 90% plant-based diet than another thousand perfect vegans. Yeah. It would make far more change and it would serve so much more greater good because it gives people permission to try. 100%. I literally wrote almost the exact same thing in my, in my book that came out last year. I said, I'd rather have millions of people doing it imperfectly than a few of us doing it perfectly. And maybe there that's why vegans are top three most hated people. <laughs> I was so shocked to hear that. I was like, how is it literally like, I was almost homeless. I was a drug addict. Now I'm a vegan. I've always been disliked. This is amazing. Angry <laughs> vegans. Hey, but there, I understand why vegans are so angry, but you have to just like yeah. meet people where they're at. And that's like yeah. a big lesson is because when you uncover you know, factory farming and the way animals are treated in the environment and how people are so sick, you get angry. Like it's hard not to feel yeah. angry at first, but you kind of have to take that anger and fuel it into something more constructive because you're never going to convince, like if someone tried to convince me to go vegan, when I was a French trained chef working in San Francisco, I would have literally laughed at them and be like, ha, there's yeah. no way, you know? So you just have to meet people where they're at. So, so my, Oh, what were you going to say? Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say my brother is uh, easily, in my opinion, the, the 
the most passionate and probably the most well-spoken animal rights activist out there. He he works with, uh, he's a cinematographer for Sean Munson who did Earthlings. I don't know if you oh, saw yeah. Earthlings. Oh, I could only sit through and, like 15 um, minutes of that movie. And he's he's currently working on a, a really cool project with some great people. He's he works with Moby and Joaquin Phoenix. Oh wow! And Bobby so cool. will tell you that like there's two kinds of activism. There's disruption activism, which is a catharsis for your anger. Mm. You act because you don't like what's happening to animals, and so you get angry at the people that are doing those things. Mm. Then there's love-based activism. Love-based activism is that you want change because you love the animals. And so your action is about being there to support the animals, not get angry at who is causing harm to them. If you can get people to fall in love with something, they will protect it till the day they die. Right. Also, if your actions are fueled by what you hate, it, it will ruin you. It's exhausting. It's so exhausting. But if your actions are fueled by love and the good that you can do, right? It doesn't matter whether it changes anything or not, because he people say to him since he's he runs Animal Save uh, the vigil where Joaquin Phoenix was seen after the Oscars. He went and they give water to the pigs on the trucks. My brother organizes that. Mm-hmm. People say, do you really think that this will actually get people to change and not eat meat? He goes, well, we've seen a few people do it. A lot of the uh, truck drivers have stopped eating meat because of it, but even if it didn't. I'd still be here because I love these pigs and it's the right thing to do Mm. period in the story. So I don't need to be angry at anybody, but I need to be here for these pigs. And so I like to say that the activism that I engage in is more love-based activism. I never changed because somebody yelled at me ever. I changed because someone got, got me or helped me figure out how to fall in love with taking care of myself and how to fall in love with the natural world. And that's why I give a shit about it. I, I, I don't love animals because somebody's hurting them. I want people to stop hurting them because I love them. So that's what I protect. I protect the animals. I don't get angry at people. Well, I'm a better person for this podcast. So thank you so much for being here. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to sit on this one all day. Thank you so much. Um, my pleasure. Do you have yeah. any uh, final words of wisdom for our for for audience i'm like losing my um yeah you know i mean i'll say this um one of my best friends who is no longer here um he was a person in long-term recovery he weighed 320 pounds was an alcoholic found veganism and running uh became one of the best ultra runners in the world um and his name was david clark um he died in surgery unfortunately um, had a bad reaction to anesthesia and died. Mm. Um, and he had a quote, and I've never heard anything close to this good, except for my brother's quote. Um, so I guess I'll give you both. But David Clark, David Clark used to say, we all know the story that if you want to be happy, you should live like it's the last day of your life. And he said, the problem with that is that if this were the last day of my life, I wouldn't be going to the gym. I wouldn't be going for a run. I wouldn't go to the grocery store. I wouldn't do the things I normally do. So that's not real. That doesn't mm. apply to my everyday life. But if you really want to be happy, maybe you should try treating everyone you meet as if they were living the last day of theirs. And I think that that is one of the most beautiful adjustments on that quote that I've ever heard. And it's so true 
what permission would you give people to be imperfect if it was their last day alive? You give them all the permission in the world. Yeah. They wouldn't have to meet your standards in order to be okay to be around you. If it was their last day alive, you'd allow them to be themselves fully and you wouldn't judge them for it. And it's a hard thing to do, but it's an amazing thing to try. Um, and uh, my brother's quote, which is very similar, um, when people ask him what is his philosophy on veganism, uh, he says, the reason he's vegan is because he believes that for no other reason you should be kind simply because it's humanly possible to do so. That kindness doesn't require justification. You don't have to justify a kind act, but you do have to justify something that goes against your core moral values. So think about what you might be justifying to yourself. Oh, I eat meat because it's okay for me because it's grass fed or it's pasture raised or it's antibiotic free or I got it from a farmer's market. Why does that matter to you? Why do you need to tell people that? Why do you have to justify your decision? If it was a truly kind and compassionate act, you just say what you were doing and be okay with it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks it for was being great. Here. So much fun. All right. Thank you so much to Adam. I think we need to have him on again. Like, I feel like he's just someone I could talk to forever and ever and ever. Um, so yeah, thank you so much to Adam. Look out for a part two. It's coming. And uh, thank you so much for being here and spending your time with us. I appreciate it more than you could ever know. And if you love this episode, please leave a comment or go leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share with a friend. It really helps. I know things are rough right now. I know there's a lot going on. Um, take care of yourself and really don't forget about those little micro moments of mental health practices that you can do for yourself, whether it be like making sure you're getting enough water, taking a five minute meditation, um, don't not calling someone that's super triggering to you or, you know, taking a walk every morning before you get on your phone. These tiny little things can really help us all with our mental health and help us show up better in the world for the things that we care about most. So one of those things for me is you guys, I care about you all so much and I'm so grateful for this community and, um, shit is hard right now, but we're going to get through it and we just got to keep going. And if you ever need anything, please reach out to me over on Instagram at chef underscore bay. Just send me a DM. I'm always here and I love you guys. So take care of yourselves and I'll see you next week.